Hey, you've tuned into Pipe Candy's Merchant Tree, where our host, Ashwin Ramasamy, gets the best minds in e-commerce to tell it how it really is. Get a front row seat to the latest trends in the e-commerce vertical and tell the hyperbole from the real deal. make some noise shall we welcome to the 1531st episode of merchantry i'm kidding um uh, <laughs> I, I wish we get to that long um but uh, probably we are in the 10th or 11th episode um but uh, i'm in a good mood as you can see the reason is uh we're going to talk about a topic which is very very close to my heart and um i have today ben trigo from uh, bainbridge growth he's the co-founder ben uh good to have you it's great to be here, Ashwin. Thank you so much for having me. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, so, so Ben, like we've talked to founders of brands, we've talked to SaaS operators, but this conversation is very different, right? So, uh, this is the first time you're talking to someone who has looked at, uh, who has like ripped apart businesses, looked at the interplay between cash flow and debt and like, the right kind of borrowing, cash versus equity uh, when it comes to growing businesses and so on. All those topics which were unfashionable maybe even two months back uh, <laughs> and, uh, and and we're going to talk about that i'm pretty sure this is going to be such a hit of an episode because of the times we are in um before we jump into all of those juicy stuff um i want to understand your background and like you know uh, if you could go ahead and do an introduction to the audiences that'd be nice yeah thank you well, I, I got my start uh, out of college in finance in New York on, on Wall Street. I was a financial analyst um, and at a couple of different firms, uh, the most recent at Lazard Frere in private equity. So that's kind of where I got my start in financial modeling and my interest in, in finance. <clears throat> I then um, realized that wasn't the career for me, uh, moved to LA, tried to break into the entertainment business. I was a TV wow. writer for a hot minute uh, for one year at Disney. And then um, got into Star Let me Sorry, yeah. uh, Did you meet Larry David? No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. I, I wasn't a very good TV writer because I didn't get a second year contract. Uh, but that I think that was a good thing. I um, then got into startups. Mm -hmm. And uh, I've been doing that ever since 2000, mostly in like marketing tech, ad tech, um, and then in e-commerce. I've always had like kind of a, uh, interest in those things. <clears throat> so Bainbridge is really the culmination of, of those things, a combination of finance and startups and tech and e-commerce. Mm -hmm. And we started Bainbridge, uh, a bunch of us came out of a company called Nanigans. Mm -hmm. It was Facebook's largest marketing partner for several years. Right. We had great customers there like eBay and Wayfair and Zappos, but also a lot of the D2C kind of 1.0 brands like Glossier, Harry's, Bonobos, Warby Parker, Peloton, we're all customers. Right. And we were um, ingesting their data and making revenue predictions as part of our software. So my co-founder and I thought that was really fascinating that with all that data, you can make these pretty accurate um, mm -hmm. cohort predictions. <clears throat> and we thought, you know, what else could you be doing with this? Like, isn't there more that these companies need than, you know, better Facebook ads? Mm -hmm. And that kind of uh, led us down the path of trying to help them make the right financial decisions. So, you know, that's when we got into financial modeling, we connected the financial modeling to a data system mm -hmm. uh, so that we could 
um, make the models more accurate and easier to use and more automated. And that's where we are today. So we work with 16 D2C brands. They um, range from usually about 10 million to up to about 80 million. There's right. nothing magic about those numbers, mm -hmm. but it really are brands that are facing complexity in their business. Mm -hmm. Omnichannel typically, you know, so they're um, Shopify, Amazon, starting into wholesale, uh, very difficult um, cash conversion cycles or, you know, understanding that. And the, this kind of complexity of the business is getting beyond them. So right. they, they start reaching out for help and making better decisions. Awesome. So you're, you're, you're a veteran when it comes to uh, uh, down market cycles, 2000, 2007 and eight. Um, well, I'm old. Is <laughs> uh, <laughs> that another way of saying I'm old? <laughs> uh, so I, I just had a, a taste of 2000 when I was when I was just graduating out. So I'm not that young either. So uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so this is familiar. Um, so coming to brands, uh, Ben. Um, I mean, they are a tough cash flow business. There's no other way of putting it, right? So um, I mean, in the early days of DTC. They were positioned as tech businesses, and they were right. Um, and uh, they are really in the business of like turning uh, cash flows, right? Yep. And, and the sooner they realize that, the better it is, right? Uh, maybe we can start with that. Um, um, you've you've talked about like businesses with ten million dollars revenue to eighty million dollars and so on, right? Um, um, what have these businesses done differently than others? That's an interesting question. Well, <clears throat> you know, there's the, a reason that I think D2C brands are really interesting, and D2C is probably a bad term, but you know, the idea of selling direct to consumer through multiple mm -hmm. channels. Um, the, the founders are typically really good at figuring out some need in the market, a better product that has resonance with some group of customers. So there's no getting around that. You know, we don't really work with like the Amazon sellers that are just trying to like, you know, game game the Amazon system. So that, that you've got to have that, but usually that takes you to I don't know a few million. You can sort of make it work, but you start petering out because of the difficulties of scaling the business. So the the guys that are the the people the founders that are able to move past that sort of. Um, you know, hair on fire stage where you're mm -hmm. getting a container, selling a container, running ads, you know, uh, usually are able to scale out because they, they get a grasp on the, the core mechanics, the finances of the business. Sometimes they can, they, they get past that on sheer luck or in the aberrations in the market as we discovered, right? Mm -hmm. So there was kind of an aberration in the market where VCs, like you were saying, were pumping lots of money into this space. And um, pre-iOS, you know, ads were pretty easy to run and everybody thought they were a genius and you could get, build these companies to a really big size and keep attracting capital and like, oh, I can go public and then everybody could look at your numbers and be like, oh, that is actually a pretty crappy company, right? And it's unclear whether they're ever gonna make money. And then the second operation in the market was like COVID, um, you know, we all decided to stay at home and then people are like, well, I still wanna buy things. And so, you know, we had all these great, you know, e-com sales. So people are like, oh, this is working really well. And now people are discovering that like, hey, you know, my, that share of wallets disappearing, right? So I think we're in this now, this kind of, like you said earlier, we're going back to normal. 
mm-hmm. you know, how these businesses really run. And there's a lot of bad habits that have been built up among founders in the space. And then they're finding it difficult to transition back into, you know, the, the kind of nitty gritty, maybe unsexy, but critical concepts of cash flow management. Right. So uh, since you say cash flow management, I mean, there is a saying, um, profit is an opinion, cash flow is a fact, right? So <laughs> cash flow. Uh, I mean, if, if I were a first time entrepreneur, I would say I want to run a profitable business. That means nothing if there's no free cash flow, right? Yeah. How about that? yeah. Well, cash, cash is king. I mean, that is absolutely critical concept to to get and to build on and never lose sight of. So you can get cash in two ways. You can, you know, raise it, which in effect you're buying it, right? So if you're right. raising capital, you're effectively buying it. So if you are raising equity, you are selling, you know, your share of the company in exchange for cash. If you're debt, you're paying, you know, interest on it in some form or another. Mm-hmm. The key to that is you got to remember that. Um, if you're raising equity, you, the founder, are paying the cost of that capital. If you're raising debt, the company is paying the cost of it. So obviously, we should all be hoping we should all be trying to raise debt as opposed to equity if we can, because you know uh, who wants to get diluted. But more importantly, it's like the second way that you really got to understand because you can't raise capital forever is you've got to be able to generate it. So eventually, investors have to say, well, "How do you generate cash?" Now you're into this like really you know it's unsexy things but there's this concept of free cash flow which you're mentioning which is basically the idea of like all the cash that's left over after you funded operations you've paid for capex like if you're building a warehouse which you know maybe you're doing maybe you're not mm-hmm. and debt payments that money that's left over is your free cash flow it's technically called your levered free cash flow and that's what is the the that's what drives your growth. Your ability to generate that money is what enables you to control your destiny. It's what enables you to grow more. It's enable enables you to be profitable. If you can't get to that stage, you might be able to convince people to give you money for a little bit of time, but you are eventually going to go out of business because, or maybe you get sold for some crappy multiple, and you know you you walk away you know relatively unscathed but not rich. Yeah, so um, that's the critical concept is is free cash flow, and you've got to figure out how to get there. So, sorry, am I rambling too much? Or? No, 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 no. I'm all ears because like okay, this is this is like this is in my part of the world the sexy topic. So, <laughs> okay, well, you and I share the same kind of unsexy uh, interest. Then. Yeah, yeah. So there are, there are two businesses. Um, I mean, in the 70s, there was TCI, the cable company, which eventually sold to AOL for $48 billion. Okay. Um, so uh, John Malone, who was the guy who did that sale, is the father of this term, EBITDA, right? Yeah. So, <laughs> so he was a I didn't know hacker, that. right? So, uh, you know, um, buy cable companies, uh, put a lot of money up front on capital costs because they cost capital um, and then and then service that debt uh, through bank loans um, and avoid taxes because you're booking losses. But but it's a free cash flow machine. And yeah. and, and 20 years later, um, Jeff Bezos did the same thing. Yeah. 
So there are really smart cash flow mavens in business and they build yeah. substantially big value, right? So um, if, was, if, if I'm a brand owner and if you're telling me that cash flow is important than profitability, can you tell me, can you assure me why I would be valued as a better business if I manage cash flow over like, um, you know, unit economics? So what is Pipe Candy? Pipe Candy is the industry standard data set that tracks over a million e-commerce and direct-to-consumer brands. Demand generation, corporate strategy, analytics, and product teams use Pipe Candy to get their share of the e-commerce land grab. Sign up for a free trial today at pipecandy.com. All right. After that classy self-promotion, we are back to the show. There's a cascade of... Um of buyers of businesses, right? So <clears throat> if you are early stage, you know, typically you're getting in with small investors or VCs. And at every subsequent stage, you know, somebody else has to come in and say, I, I believe that this business can go to another level, right? And mm-hmm. so at, at, at a larger scales, like at the scales that we're talking about, like a 10 to $100 million business, you know, your, your next phase is like, well, going public or um, being acquired. Mm -hmm. So if you, just to take the acquired ones off the table first, like you can have a very good exit, you know, like Hero Cosmetics to a strategic who says, hey, you've proven out uh, the ability to to win in a new category profitably. And, you know, if I buy you with my distribution, I can ramp your sales like three X, no problem, you know, tomorrow. Mm -hmm because I can get you into all my accounts. And so this is a win. So that's a great exit. The key to that type of exit though, is like some sort of dominance in a category or a, you know, to get a good exit out of that is dominance in the category or, or, um, or a nice strong customer base that you prove through profitability, right? So it's still right. important. Um, and your ability to stay in business. Nobody, nobody wants to come in and be like, well, let me just fund, you know, $200 million of losses for the next indefinite period seven years because we hope this works out so cash flow is still important there for the public markets though eventually the public markets are going to say you know some form of a discounted cash flow like hey I, these guys make money i discount those back at some risk return rate and i say this has a lot of value so i'm willing to pay you know seven dollars a share for it or seventy dollars a share for it you know so you still have to be able to generate and you can't you know um that, that cash has to show up at some point. Now, you, Bezos was able to convince people, like, don't worry, it'll show up in like two, three decades or whatever it was, mm-hmm. but it's it's showing up, right? Right. So, you know, he ultimately was able to deliver on that. Um, so that that's why, you know, this is so important. It's like, you know, above just profitability, it's like you got to be able to get there. And you, to get there, you still need the cash, right? So you've got to mm-hmm. be able to prove to people that you can deliver on that profitability without consuming infinite amounts of cash. And that was the one of the main reasons that the VCs got out of the business is because they they said, you know, or to a large degree, because they're like, I can't fund the cash needed to get to this potential profitability. You know, these guys are consuming way too much cash. Right. So, I mean, that's what is, uh, I mean, what's exciting or what's interesting for me is if you have unit level profitability, and you have the ability to generate cash, the cash funds growth, 
right? So, so you don't have to be in a situation where you decide between growth and profitability. Just, I mean, okay. which is what most of the VC businesses um, are asked to choose between. Um, uh, cash gives you the luxury of both growth as well as profitability. You can choose not yeah. to have profitability. You can put that money all back into you know, funding new brands or like starting new warehouses and so on, but you're in control in that sense. That's right. Well, that's what's so, you know, I think that's what a lot of um, CEOs and founders and companies are struggling with right now is that, you know, the market has shifted so dramatically and they all sense in some form or another their loss of control. You know, if you're not, if you aren't generating your own cash, then you are relying on somebody else giving it to you. And, um, you know, this is a scary time to be relying on somebody else, you know, convincing somebody else to give you money. So it's, it's absolutely critical that, that people figure this out quickly. Now, the good news is you can figure it out. If you know what to, how to do it, you can figure it out. And, you know, um, that's what I, you know, I think we'll be talking about, you know, here too, is like, you know, how do you sort of diagnose the problem and, and get to answers quickly so you, you do, um, you are able to self-rescue and survive. Right. Let's talk about that, right? So um, let's say I'm a brand that comes to you and I have yeah. $10 million revenue, um, 90% EBITDA, I mean, which is great. Um, and uh, what kind of questions would you ask me um, about uh, to understand my cash flow situation and what cash flow is good? Uh, so today, if I'm a brand, what should I plan for from a cash flow? Yeah. Point? Well, it, you know, let me sort of go back up to first principles or, you know, to, that your job as a founder is to build a machine where you can put a dollar in and you get more than a dollar out on the other side, right? Consistently. Simple. And if you can do that, you will have an incredible amount of value. Any idiot can build a machine where you put a dollar in and you get 50 cents out on the other side. That's mm -hmm. easy, right? Mm -hmm. Like, don't, you don't want to be that person. Right. So let's be the smart person, right? So now you got to think about like, Okay, what what are the inputs? Where what, how does that dollar get converted? Well, what's, what makes you know brands difficult is that they're very complex businesses, right? And you have kind of multiple flywheels moving at the same time. So the complexity comes from multiple disciplines that you have to master, right? So. Mm -hmm. I have international supply chains, I have logistics, I have marketing, I have product development, I have paid advertising, I have finance, I have operations. I mean, it's way more difficult than a SaaS business. Right. Right? No recurring revenue. Yeah, exactly. And it's like, I don't, you know, SaaS businesses, like international supply chain, logistics, like, yeah. you know, like customer support, like, yeah, send me an email, right? Um, you know, so the, the um, you know, that, that complexity is hard. Then the other thing is you have these multiple flywheels, right? So you have this, like the first part of your cash conversion cycle is your ability, like, hey, I paid my supplier well in advance of my ability to monetize the inventory, right? So that is is a uh, typically the biggest part of your, your cash conversion cycle. And then the other part is like, now that I have the inventory, how long does it take me to sell through that inventory, right? Mm -hmm. So like, you know, just because I got a, you know, 100,000 units sitting in my 3PL today, doesn't mean that I can sell it all tomorrow, right? So that that now is a function of, well, what does your repeat business look like? Mm -hmm. And what does your acquisition business look like? And so, 
you're now, I think, getting a sense of like the questions that we start asking people when we, you know, right. sit down with them the first time. Like, what do your supplier terms look like? You know, are you paying 100% up front or are you able to spread that out more? You know, what does your repeat business look like? How quick, how often are your customers coming back? And how, you know, how um, fast are they, you know, buying through your inventory? And what does your ability to acquire customers look like? And, and you know, what is your ability to pay for that ad spend? And then you start getting into, you know, some, the concepts around, like everybody wants to talk about ad spend, right? And CACs and stuff. But, the, you know, the key is like, you know, what's your payback period on, on those customers that you're acquiring? Because if you're acquiring customers, um, you know, just as an example, you, you know, people are like, oh, I want to, you know, I want to let CACs go up. Any CACs need to go up, you know, whatever, we're having trouble. So they want to raise CACs. So they, and let's say that their goal is like a million dollars in sales in a month. So they let CACs go up so that they hit their sales target. So like, okay, you reduced cash, right? Because you had to pay for more ads. Right. Uh, you you hopefully got that cash back in terms of, of your revenue. But now what you also have to think back is like, is it because your CACs went up for that set of customers that you required your payback period on them just got extended so it's not you know what happened in this period it's it's what's going to happen in six or eight nine months from now like before they start generating free cash for you yeah. and that like right there is like a concept that people often are like oh you know like yeah so now i'm like extending on my payback period so like okay things looked good this period but I'm gonna have a cash issue out into the future because it's taking me longer to recoup that cash, you know, from from those customers that were more expensive to acquire. Right. So yeah, uh, that's an aha moment or like oops moment, depending on. And for most businesses, it is the oops moment. Uh, and there's right. also skew level profitability. Uh, people don't like get into that like until it's uh, it pinches them. Uh, that's yeah. a Sorry, if I can jump in, you just reminded me that's a great point that you often see companies um, and I had this just last night, actually, and really interesting company that had sort of cracked the code on a product. But but then, you know, everybody's like, oh, I need to grow. I need to expand my customer base. I need to, you know, and there's a whole different topic around, like, can you really expand your customer base or your your, you know, your tribe, so to speak? but they, they tried it and then they found like, okay, now we're attracting these different types of customers, right? That aren't actually as pro, they're not generating as much cash, lower price points, worse payback periods, mm-hmm. worse churn rates on the subscription. So now, you know, it's like, not only did you develop that product, but you're like churning through a lot of money, acquiring those customers that aren't generating money for you. So that's like sort of the second level of questions that we start looking at is like, what do you, what is your, how do we segment your customers to find the most uh, profitable ones that can generate the most cash for you? How do we segment your products so that we can look at the ones that are most profitable? Another common problem is like people acquire customers for a certain product, but those customers never come back. They don't, they don't buy into the rest of the brand. A great example there is like we had a very a CEO of a very successful company, um, you know, up in the two hundred million dollar range, and and they were um, they're like you know we 
after about four years, we finally figured out that like backpacks were kind of useless for us. Mm-hmm. We've been putting all this money into like building and acquiring customers for backpacks. We finally looked at all the data and like the backpack buyers never come back. They'd buy a backpack and we'd never see them again. So just right. imagine how much money they spent, you know? I mean, he was like, thankfully caught it, but how much money he had spent on developing backpacks, you know, acquiring them, selling them, advertising them, all for a customer that was like basically a one hit, you know, deal. Yeah, that's what made me wonder about businesses like you know, mattresses, for example, right? Like, so um, you don't buy a mattress every year. Uh, so uh, so you're in a very difficult business, like right up front. Uh, and, yeah. And the product line expansion does not allow for a lot of like repeat purchases either, right? Uh, so um, I think that's, uh, that's a good education if you're a, if you're a, uh, a entrepreneur thinking of launching a product like repeat purchases is something you need to think of like way ahead um the, the other question that kind of confounds me is uh these innovative brands and products like that are trying to create a category how do you calculate LTV in these cases or when they launch a new product um and and modeling that carries a lot of assumptions and in this market, uh, getting the wrong, uh, getting the model wrong means um, uh, you're out of cash uh, by a few quarters before you you thought you would. So that's risky. Yeah. So what's your advice? Well, first let's define LTV. So oftentimes, the majority of time when people tell me an LTV number, what they really mean is lifetime revenue, right? Mm-hmm. So. An example there is like, you know, a company is like, oh, we, we've got this like, you know, and they, and they never, def- they, they rarely define lifetime, you know, it's like, oh, it's, you yeah. know, so let's say what we like to do is first you time bracket it, like, okay, what's your tw- six months, 12 months, or, you know, eight, depending kind of on your product. Um, <clears throat> but the LTV really should be contribution profit after marketing. And, you know, people use different terms at Bainbridge. We were big uh, proponents of standardizing so we can benchmark everybody against each other and mm-hmm. you know, provide better advice. So our definition of contribution after marketing is uh, your contribution profit is what's left over after you've delivered to the customer, right? And then the after marketing is your full marketing expenses. It's not just your paid, it's, it's you know, your, your costs of, your marketing team, you know, any agencies you're using PR, uh, all Mm -hmm. the budgets, right? So contribution after marketing is now what's left over for you to fund OpEx. So you're still not profitable, you know, you have your overhead, but you know, you have a, you have a good sense of the kind of the unit economics at that point. And, and what's critical here, and this is why, you know, we're, we're, we, you know, we think that ROAS is a pretty lousy metric is like, if you, you know, people say, oh, ROAS. So they mean like, you know, oh, my revenue rate or return on ad spend or, you know, but usually they're using revenue numbers. So let's say you had like a $300 quote lifetime revenue, but you had a $30 contribution profit after marketing. And if, and if you're like, oh, I'm running at a 3X ROAS. So you're like, okay, so you have a $100 CAC. But what you're also telling me is that it's going to be over three years before you're even getting the money back to fund your OPEX. Like how confident are you in your repeat business that you're going to do that? Like you are creating a massive cash trough in your business until you can get to profitability. So the more customers you're acquiring, you're just deepening that trough. Right. 
Right. And then, and like, where's that money coming from? <laughs> like, you better be really good at raising it because that's going to be painful. 